Hi, this is Debbie Shore, co-founder of Share Our Strength, and welcome to Add Passion and Stir. I'm sitting in for my brother, Billy Shore, today, and I'm really happy to be here with two really terrific guests. I'm sitting here with Rock Harper, Chef Rock Harper, who is the president of Rock Solid Creative Food Group. He's helped to develop just a lot of different food concepts, um, and he's a cookbook author, and he's the winner of the third season of Hell's Kitchen, dying to hear about that. So, welcome. Thank you. Good to have you here. Good to be here. And Micheline Davis, incredible accomplishments from uh, everything I know about you, Micheline. And uh, Micheline is the executive vice president of and chief corporate affairs officer for RWJ Barnabas Health, uh, one of the largest uh, healthcare systems in New Jersey. And we're so happy to have both of you here. Just can't wait to dig in. I think I'm going to start with you, Micheline. And it, it, it may be a funny place to start, but... It, one thing I heard you say was that you loved being from uh, a place like Camden, where yeah. it has a very, very tough reputation. A lot of bad things happen there, but you're proud of that. And it's obviously helped to you know, develop your, your outlook on life. I just want to hear a little bit more about why that's important to you and, and how, that's, how that's really formed your, your, your career and your future. So growing up in Camden City, um, New Jersey uh, was was just a, a tremendous. Um, I always say uh, it was a tremendous opportunity, right? That I didn't know at the time. Um, so yes, Camden City had been. Uh, uh, you may recall, remember the old uh, headline that said. Camden, who could live there with a Time Life uh, article. Um, and I distinctly recall literally a quote by the, the author of that article that said um, that Camden City was full of young girls who dreamed of growing up to become hairdressers, but wound up becoming um, streetwalkers. And I'm utilizing a much better term. Um, what I will tell you is that I did not know that that was where I lived. And I did not know that because my parents were so laser focused in ensuring that uh, we had a sense of normalcy in our uh, home environment, um, right? Two parents uh, who went to work every day, came home every day. They also um, really, really sacrificed. When I say really sacrificed, I need to make certain you understand that what I'm talking about. So my parents, um, there were five of us in a household uh, um, and my father probably made, what, $30,000 as a construction worker, to tell you the truth, right? Um, but nevertheless, they sent me to private Christian school because they wanted to make certain that I had um, that the best educational foundation as possible. They later became foster parents, and them being foster parents um, was very different in that they also sent some of our foster brothers and sisters to college. Um, and these folks still uh, remained a part of our family. So we had this ever-expanding family that I think was really the way in which my parents helped to build the life that they wanted their children to lead, despite the fact that around us, right, we still had one of the highest homicide rates in the country. Um, They kept us very close. I don't think that I ever stayed the night at a friend's house until I was probably 15, and she was actually my god sister. Um, We lived in an area of the city um, uh, which is called Parkside, which just means that it's beside a park. But if you knew what that park was like, you probably wouldn't let your kids just go play in it by themselves either. Um, they were really um, adamant that we had a lot of cultural enrichment. So 
my mother would take us to Philadelphia um, for the theater and for museums. Uh, Walt Whitman's home actually um, is in Camden City. And so, uh, right, he wrote about uh, Camden City, that's the city invincible, but they took me to his home and we read Leaves of Grass together as a family. So they were just very big. They were voracious readers. Um, they were just um, really uh, uh, big about how exciting education was. My mother went back to get her college degree when she turned 50 and I was already in college. It was really uh, a very sweet thing, but kind of studying together was what my family did. And they they made, they tricked us. They did a Jedi mind trick on us to make us think that that was like the, the most exciting thing ever. Um, and they, and they so, sound so remarkable. I can't even, I feel like uh, a loser parent right now. Oh, I can no. tell you that much. No, well, what, did your no mother, what did your mother do? Yeah, so my mother was um, both uh, a social worker and worked with special needs children, um, as well as the fact that actually she and my father were pastor and, and, and pastor. So they were co-pastors together. We had a very small little church. It was located right there in Camden City. Um, and so as a result of that, you know, um, he really was the father for my entire neighborhood. I did not realize until I was much older that that was because so many of those children did not have fathers. Incredible effort from your parents, but it sounds like it was natural for them. And boy, did it pay off. When's the movie come out? I want to see that. I want to see that movie. <laughs> this is a movie. <laughs> wow. Chef Rock is just kind. No, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. It's very inspiring. Oh, they were tremendous. Um, there were times, so so at some point, my parents were also really big on making certain that um, we never thought that any of our accomplishments um, distinguished us too, too much from the folks that we lived around, right? So um, I would go off and win like an academic bowl or something. I'd come home um, and and my award would go missing and then it would later pop up the same, like the same month. But that night, whatever the night was, we always, we always had to go home and finish our chores. And later on in life, I realized um, when I became the acting state treasurer for New Jersey, I never told my parents. Um, it was a neighbor who who knocked on their door and said, is this your daughter's name on my paycheck? Um, so that's how they found out that I was even the state treasurer. Um, and, and I think that a lot of that just kind of came from um, this this knowledge that you're only given a leadership role to be a servant leader. And so, you know, my father traditionally cared less about the title than he did about what you did for others when you had the opportunity. Um, so I, it's just kind of the way it's always been. I remember the one of the governors, one of the governors that I worked for saying to me, um, do your parents know what you do? And I looked at him and I said, I don't I don't I don't know. Right. I have become the first African-American to be chief policy advisor to the governor of our state. And I literally had to say, I, I don't know. That didn't come up. Right. What's the best way I could say it? I, I normally just said, Mom, Dad, um, I, I'm doing what you told me. I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to make the world better for brothers and sisters. And we just kept it moving. That was it. Rock, um, you've developed all kinds of great food concepts and restaurant concepts, but you've also done a lot with the community. And I want to hear uh, a little bit about your work at D.C. Central Kitchen and, and tell us what it is. too. Uh, so D.C. Central Kitchen is a uh, is a non nonprofit that um, Robert Egger uh, started about maybe almost 30 years ago. So, I mean, the, the short version is, you know, he wanted to be a nightclub owner. And after the club one night or wherever he was working one night, they were giving out sandwiches and they would, you know, give out food to homeless people. And he saw the same people in the line off of his truck and he saw the same people in the line. And he figured this is not working if they're, you know, where, where, how does this cycle get stopped? So he created um, the kitchen where, you know, you take the leftovers on inaugurate like H.W.'s inaugural 
day or the day after his inauguration or something like that. There was a lot of food left over from the... Is that when it started? Yeah. Yeah, because Share Strength is a funder. Okay. It was a funder of D.C. Central yeah, yeah. Kitchen, but uh-huh. I, didn't, I didn't realize it started during the inauguration. Inauguration of, I believe, the first Bush. Um, uh, so what it, it's, it's, that's almost 30 years ago. So, uh, so yeah, so he started, basically, you know, the kitchen is a place where you, we use food as a tool um, to, to combat, to, you know, to impact the community. Uh, less in hunger, but not in the sense that, you know, people need to eat. I work with Central Union Mission now, and there's nothing wrong with, there's everything right with feeding people, right? We still need to feed people, but also what are we doing with that food? And what are we doing with the people? So the people in the line or the people that, you know, some people are calling the throwaways, the the forgotten people, you know, under underemployed, chronically, um, previously incarcerated, um, you know, previously addicted, or maybe still dealing with addiction, what are we doing with the, the food that is, you know, people we throw away so much? And how can we bring those two together with culinary job training, which is uh, a big part of probably the backbone of D.C. Central Kitchen? How can we use this food and these people to, you know, to impact the community in a big way? So training people, culinary skills in the CJT, the culinary job training. How big was that challenge, right? You've got people coming in who are or you're serving a community that's really you know, in need, mm-hmm. uh, struggling with hunger, struggling in poverty, and you decide to train them and help them break that cycle. How big of a leap is that? And 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 how does that how does that training work? It's really hard. I mean, I I, I won't even like. Uh, there's no way of getting around it. It's it's fulfilling, but it's extremely tough. My my one of my heroes, uh, Marianne Ali, who just passed uh, a couple months ago, um, was in. She was. The the core. She's the north star of DC Central Kitchen. She was the core of that of that program. But it's hard to go to work every day sometimes because when you have a guy, I had a student one time was had been locked up for twenty seven years, and he was sixty seven years old or is sixty seven years old, and he's ready. People think that he would be hard. He was ready, right? He he knows there's not too much out here for me to to do in his mind. So he thinks. So he's ready. He's gonna soak it all up. Sometimes when you have people who aren't ready, not to their own fault, they're just falling on their own habits. That's the work. It become frustrating, but Mariana would always remind us, this is the work, right? This is not, even in culinary school, at Johnson & Wales, you have students that don't want to show up and do the program that are paying $80,000 for a degree. That's why it's called work. Right. This is the, exactly. So, uh, but it was fulfilling work because what you see is that when it works, when you see it, when you see the, not necessarily job, the breakthrough. The liberation, that's when you feel great, right? There's no cameras around. There's no, no fanfare or anything like that. But to know you can affect another human being's life, and in turn, they can affect yours, right? So that's the key. It's not I'm, I'm there to sort of help them. I am, but they're there to help me as well to see things differently. Um, and, and, and with that power, like we can, just similar to what you all do at Share Our Strength, it, that what we can do like we can change, you know. I think lofty. We can change the world. Like if we if we apply that uh, view to everything. What What do you think the general success rate is there? Do you have any idea? Oh, on the, on the job training and placement. Oh, the play. I mean, it's it it varies. I want to say over eighty percent of um, employment. The the key the employment is really big. Like we got a big gap there, especially in D.C. right now. But one of the one of the key stats was the the rate of uh, recidivism. Of, of people going back to jail and how drastically that reduces once you get enrolled in a program like D.C. Central Kitchen and once you get em- employed. Like, people don't really 
want to go back to jail, <laughs> right? Nobody. It's like, I think I'm going to go back to jail this summer or for the next 20 summers. It's not on anybody's mind when they wake up. People want to. Mm-hmm. They want to improve. They want to feed their families. and They want to feed themselves. They're getting a real chance. And they're getting it from people like you who just just hearing you just seems to have a real understanding of, of how hard it really is oh, yeah. and how patient one really needs to be to help them break that cycle. Micheline, you are leading the policy development and social impact for Barnabas Health, one of New Jersey's largest healthcare systems. Uh, you know, I know you've done a lot of really interesting things, but tell us how you got there and how that evolved from the early days when you were, were a litigator. So so two things. One, to Chef Rock's um, exact point, right? Um, it is the work. Um, I feel like my current role um, really is the culmination of all of these interesting uh, experiences that I've had along along the path, right? Because that's what it is. Um, and, and so if we hearken back to um, uh, what he just commented about, right? The fact that, you know, if, when folks are ready, right, then we begin to see change. Uh, the work that we're currently doing at RWJ Barnabas um, through our social impact and community investment um, uh, practice is really in order to create the change that we need to actually see in systems and structures so that these individuals have a real fighting chance. Um, you you mentioned the fact that I, I had been a litigator, Debbie. Absolutely, right? So um, I was a, a public defender, a criminal, criminal defense attorney in our state's adult trial um, uh, criminal system for about 10 years of my career. And what I noticed about that was the fact that, you know, yes, you're doing great work, right? Um, my issue is that I felt like I was only effectu- effectuating a change um, in the lives where we of people where we could you know, one at a time. It just, I felt like it just wasn't enough. I wound up going from there, literally getting tapped on the shoulder um, to go to the to the state um, health department to be a policy advisor to the former commissioner of health. Um, because at the time, this is several governors ago uh, at this point, um, the, the governor of the state of New Jersey was tasked by the, by the National Governors Association to lead a prisoner reentry roundtable. Uh, their issue was that Right. They really didn't have sort of that sense and sensibility within the Department of Health on what it was that the that this population really needed along the lines of health care. And as a trial litigator, I literally would file my legal briefs um, full of policy implications of, of a system that that wasn't one which which had universal health care. Right. So I.e. I represented an indigent population, um, but if my client was arrested and charged with possession with the intent to distribute, they wanted to give her jail. And if, um, you know, a rock star was, then he was just self-medicating. And I, I began to really see the fact that our systems and our structures, right, um, aren't set up for the success of the same population that Chef Rock is talking about right now. And then going into the Department of Treasury and eventually after being deputy state treasurer, becoming the the um, acting state treasurer for the state of New Jersey, and then becoming the chief policy counsel for the governor um, has all led up to uh, really the role that I have right now. So um, how do we get there at this large healthcare system? Well, uh, RWJ Barnabas Health literally treats some 5 million of New Jersey's 8 million uh, people. And so when you treat two thirds of the population, you sort of have to ask yourself, right, with the breadth and depth that we have, and we are, right, if in fact, we are the second largest private employer in the state of New Jersey, what are we really doing in order to make communities healthier? And are we in fact, utilizing every um, aspect of our resource background in order to do so? 
as a result of that, I had some conversations with our, our tremendous CEO, or our president and chief executive officer is Barry H. Ostrowski, who is um, really just such a, uh, I call, I tell him all the time, he's like an undercover agent. He looks like this very buttoned up corporate guy. But when he speaks, his heart comes out. And when that comes out, it is not just about the patients and families that we treat within our hospitals, but it is really also about the communities that we serve and in particular, vulnerable populations within those communities. Yeah, Micheline, can you tell us a little bit about the Root Cause Coalition and and the work they're doing to um, uh, address the social determinants of health? Absolutely. Um, I have the the um, incredible privilege um, and, and humbling honor to be a part of their advisory committee. And I have to tell you, the Root Cause Coalition is, I think, taking um, uh, issues of food insecurity and as they impact um, health outcomes, as well as, of course, other social determinants of health, um, really to, to, to the next level. They are a fantastic um, entity that, of course, is full of advocacy and um, policy reformation. Um, around really, right? So how is the current construct of the country as we um, find it um, really contributed to the proliferation of, of the, the health outcomes as we currently see them? And what outside of just healthcare delivery, because it's such a small component of a person's experience, but what about the places where people live, work, play, age, um, what about those places, right? Are there, are, are we ensuring that folks are living in environments that are sustainable and healthy, right? Meaning, right, are they breathing clean air and do they have access to fresh water um, that isn't lead laced? Um, are we in fact making certain that there's uh, transportation infrastructure, which it supports folks who, um, you know, fall on different aspects of a socioeconomic um, range? Uh, do the, the least of these have an opportunity to get to work on a daily basis? without having to spend too large a percentage of their, their income, um, right? And what about their, their children? Are they growing up in systems which help to ensure that they are educated around achieving healthy outcomes? So do they live in environments which are safe enough for them to run, jump, and play? Hmm? And um, what do we need to do in order to ensure that across industry silos, so not just healthcare system and or hospital. But what are our payers doing? What about our insurers, right? How do we go outside of just those traditional playing spaces to make certain that we're creating uh, a systems policy infrastructure that's supportive of health and all policies? The Root Cause Coalition has done tremendous work to date. And I'm telling you guys, they are really just getting started. They really um, are helping to bring about the change that we need to see um, at every level, state, federal, um, municipal, around uh, how do we address issues like food insecurity, and how do we help to educate a public about their role in helping to advance the change that they need? They're, they're tremendous. I'm wondering what you're seeing in terms of, of hunger and nutrition at, yeah, at yeah. your hospitals and what just, what, you know, what are the levels and how does it think it's, you know, how are you viewing how it's affecting the, in particular kids? Yeah. So what I will tell you is, um, right, so in New Jersey, we've got over 1.1 million um, people who are food insecure, right? But what's really interesting is that when, when oftentimes when you go to a doctor's office, um, you come in to see them, you get up on the table, and you know they're asking you everything from, so how long have you had this this ailment? Um, right? How does it? How painful is it on a scale of one to ten? Um, you get written a prescription, and then folks go off. What the, the types of questions that we are are really beginning to turn the tide and have our clinical community begin to ask. 
ask are are the other things around the social determinants of health that really affect um, health outcomes, right? Upwards of 60 to 80 percent. You got it. Like food insecurity. Like so. So asking them, right. Um, you know, are are you, in fact, um, food secure? Do you have enough food to make it through this month, this week? today, right? Does your family know where they're going to live, where they're going to sleep tonight, right? Next month? Um, Are you in fact in stable um, job uh, security, right? And so we've done an an initiative. Our uh, anchor initiative is to embrace um, hiring locally, um, uh, local procurement, and then investing locally because we want to make certain that folks have access to really good, nutritious food. Listen, um, we're in the South Ward of Newark, and the South Ward of Newark remains uh, a food desert, right? Um, to that end, we have established and created a, uh, a greenhouse there. But the reason why our social impact practice is different is because it is, in fact, policy-led, right? So the greenhouse was there, like lots of other hospitals, right? We did a ribbon cutting. We, we shook our, our, our each other's hands. We patted ourselves in the back. And then we began to take a, a, a even closer look at both the utilization rate of that greenhouse by the community in which it sits, as well as um, the partnerships that we had with other folks on the ground. And Debbie, you know what we found? We found that we had created this greenhouse and coupled it with a community wellness center where we do cooking classes and and job training. But as a result of that, we also found that we had placed it dead center in the heart of 5,000 people who relied on SNAP, Supplemental Nutritional um, Assistance Program. And yet we were not able to accept a SNAP voucher. So to me, that's kind of like placing it in the in the heart of, of their home and saying, but don't touch this. And you are you are addressing all at the same time, which is critically important when people are living in poverty. You're addressing all these issues. You're addressing nutrition. You're addressing hunger. You're addressing their basic health. Uh, it sounds like just you know everything that surrounds a child that needs to is something that you're addressing, which is really, is there any other, uh, are you a model around the country or are there other facilities that are kind of doing this comprehensive kind of health care? So I think that what has been what has made um, us unique. So there are lots of hospitals that decide, yes, we'll do a community garden and or a greenhouse and or right, a mobile van. I think that that what has separated us is, is the fact that we again, um, we do, in fact, try to change the, 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 the policy implications of things. Right. So we didn't just say, oh, OK, well, we're going to get um, recognized as uh, the only hospital affiliated greenhouse that's able to accept SNAP vouchers. Um, we didn't stop there. We literally began really also having discussions with policy leaders around what it would what it would mean for these communities across the state, not just in those where we have a footprint, in order to literally have greenhouses that were affiliated like this or urban farmers markets to literally just be automatically enrolled and enrolled in WIC, right? Women's Infants and Children and SNAP. So why wouldn't we have automatic enrollment? Um, And so we really had to begin working with the state and then working with with the at the federal level as well in order to get folks to sort of turn the tide of of um, the way in which things had historically been, right? Which is, right, to, to create change in that way is would be really difficult for a small grassroots type organization. But when you are the state's largest integrated healthcare system, right, um, and the state's largest integrated behavioral health system, you know, folks tend to, to return a call every once in a while. And so what we wanted to say is, listen, this is a platform issue for us because it impacts the health outcomes of these children for generations to come. We also went into the school system, Debbie. Right. So we have this kids fit program throughout at least 12 schools and even some churches in this community as well. What we realize is just presenting them the opportunity 
to have fresh fruit and produce wasn't going to be enough unless we we did what, what Chef Rock talks about, right? Unless we we educated folks um, about. So this is a leak, right? Um, this is this is um, how you prepare it. This is um, right the better way to to enjoy your your collard greens or your kalalu, right? So a culturally competent manner of understanding what it is that they want to eat and experience, and then how do we um, adapt ourselves rather than acquire require those who are already having right some challenges and navigating the waters of life. How do we make certain that these kids have a transgenerational opportunity to change the these eating habits for their families? We've literally seen uh, children educate up in their families. And so now we have families who are coming to us saying, listen, all together, we've lost 75, 100 pounds because our kid looked at us and, and literally said, you know, I'm not eating that. Right. Um, and mommy, um, this doesn't come from a can. It actually comes from the ground. And, and so right, we, we can have this differently. I want to turn to Rock because he's got a book on this. Uh, 44 tips to parents on how to, you know, teach your kids about healthy eating. So what's in this book? And give us maybe the top five tips and tell us if it's still available. It's still available. Um, I got to say on the rewrite, uh, I'm going I'm to I'm have to rewrite it. Uh, some things have changed, but I, I'm, 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 I'm going to include Michelin. You have you got me like ready to jump out of my seat. Um <laughs> Collards, kalaloo, and culturally... What's kalaloo? Help it's us. It's another green. It's a dish, <laughs> but it's also... It's a green. Like like a collard, but Correct. different. Yeah. Better right. than collards. Right. Well, it depends. Yeah. Collards are bitter. Where you from? Bit it depends. From the, <laughs> Jamaica, you might say, yeah, it's better. But, yeah. Um, and culturally competent. I love 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 how That's you it. put... And you're right. That, that matters. Um, 44 Things Parents Should Know About Healthy Cooking for Kids. Small title. Um, it's, okay. it's simple tips. I wanted to do... You know, people, we make this so such a big thing, like healthy, and then you throw in the organic, and it's sort of confusion from a lot of the companies as to, and then it's just too expensive. What right. what I wanted to do was write a book that said, here's, you can do one thing or you can do 44. You can do one a week, you can do one a month, just mm. do one thing. So it, 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 it talks about very simple, get up and move, um, how to... Navigate the television. So not just, not just cooking. Definitely no. A There's lot only of other two things. recipes in the uh, in the whole book. It's not even a you know a chef without a cookbook, right? We can find recipes. The internet is vast. We can find re- and there's some great cookbooks out there. We can find recipes. I wanted to give people actual tips, like don't hide think don't hide don't hide um, in the food. People like I think Seinfeld's wife has a book out about sneaky like sneaking in healthy, right? And I don't believe in well, that. Like don't don't hide the vegetables in the, in the cookies, cookies or something. Right, exactly. no, not that anybody would do so that. So one chapter I guess is you could <laughs> carrots or something. You can. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, one yeah. chapter is don't hide stuff. Let kids know what don't they're eating. Hide stuff. I like that. But then the next chapter is hide stuff. Right. So um, because I think it wor- works both ways. There isn't one solution. Is a is a sort of recurring theme to the book. There's 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 a bunch of build solutions. it in, build it into the easy way to deliver this to your lifestyle. kids. Right. It's a lifestyle. Yeah, that makes thing. sense. Yeah. Teach them. You know, play a game. Teach them from the. Um, it, it, what we're finding, I talk to a lot of people in schools and in different programs. Is Micheline, what she said was so uh, it was true in my in my research. The kids are teaching up, right? They're going home because they don't. Well, nobody wants to be. We have to understand. We want to be happy and and we want to feel good. 
So when we find out at school or wherever the program is. And when we, you get there, you want to stay there. Right. Exactly. Uh, we go home and tell we tell our caregivers and we tell them and say, hey, we can do this. So, you know, it, people just need access to it. So the book is really about that. Um, it's just empowering people. Love is a big like the last three chapters all about. It's not, you know, if you eat, if you're a vegan and you slip up and eat an egg. Like the world wants to say, see, told you, you know, and beat you down, right? Or, you know what I'm saying, if you eat lasagna three days in a row, like if we had this guilt in America. It's like, oh, my God, you know, but love our children. If they eat the nuggets at school, it's not, I mean, I don't like the nuggets at school. I tell my kids what's in them, but hug and like smile. That's a my publisher is like, well, what does that have to do with cooking? Because we need to be. Like we need to be compassionate and forgiving. This is this is a true chef That's talking, yeah. right? This is the way chefs feel about food. Yeah, the connection well, between know. love and food and what it means. Mm-hmm. It's more than just eating. Their yeah. food is such sustenance in so many different ways. In so many ways, and we have to we have to we have to care for people as human beings. The food stuff is extremely important, but I believe that why is that so hard in this world? For the care, I don't know. Well, we, we, part That's two. another. It's another right. show. <laughs> That's another podcast. Yeah. Uh, you know, the question is important. Some, another thing uh, Micheline said was when, when, when a company, when an organization, when a group of people can ask themselves these, mm. these tough questions or um, just be 100% objective, I think that's extremely valuable. Chefs don't do a great job of it sometimes in our restaurants. I was just looking on Facebook today and this one chef was ranting about somebody got demoted. I think it was him as a result of a customer complaint online. I think even I saw something on Washington Post about people's responsibilities and posting. And, you know, customers say what they want. It's a part of our business, right? Especially now. The tough thing to do, I learned this a long time ago from a vice president of mine, is to be objective. As an artist, that's extremely hard. It's not about you. It's not about your ego, right? A lot of companies won't they'll double down on their efforts. We didn't make a mistake. People just weren't ready or whatever. It's more important to ask the questions because when you ask these honest questions, no matter where you're coming from, you can get to that applies to everything in life. Yeah, right. It's a you know, it's another way of saying like don't take it personally, but really be objective and think about how to improve it. Uh, Chef, tell us what's been the trajectory for your career. How did you get here? Uh, Well, love to cook as a kid, right? Um, With your um, grandparents, usually my grandmother. Watch my grandmother. My mother, awesome cooks. my, I had two older sisters. You know, I wasn't like the coolest kid in my neighborhood. They always brought their girlfriends over. They liked me when I cooked, right? So a little boy, a little teenage boy, a preteen boy that gets, you know, hi, little Rachman from... Uh, from Rachman's your real name. Rachman, but it's been yes. uh-huh. Rachman, did I say it wrong? You did. No, no, Rachman. no. Uh-uh. Uh, but you've, you're now Rock. Yeah, my best friend gave me Rock. Uh, best thing, you know, I owe him a little bit of money. Micheline and I like that name, <laughs> yeah. right, Micheline? We do. We yeah. do. It's a good one. So I like people, and I always, food was a way for me to connect with people. Um, I, in eighth grade, I said I was going to be a chef or a comedian. I really like entertainment, um, and that's oh, where okay. we are now with Rock Solid. Um, I really want to uh, sort of make a make a name in that space and sort of switch things up. But um, just love cooking, took home ec, took culinary arts in high school, um, went on to college. Just love it. I love, I, I've really, I've done some reflecting over the years and it's cooking food is an opportunity f- for me to connect with people, right? I understand that. It's, it is, a, it's an opportunity for me to connect with people and it, I'll continue to do that. So Rock Solid is a new medium yes. that you're developing. Correct. That is in development mm-hmm. and it's part entertainment, part 
So Rock Salad is my company that governs it all. Um, it is, uh, we, I want to inspire, I want to be the source for uh, sh- chefs and food people to, you know, for education, sort of in, inside industry education, uh, entertainment, right? Um, and not regular folks entertainment, if that makes sense. You know, there's a bunch of like Hell's Kitchen, Top Chef, Food Network. Those are, those are geared towards, you know, people, viewers. I don't know if we necessarily, you have some shows, some smaller shows and some of these other networks that are geared toward us. I want to be that that person. I want to make a name in that space. And we're, we're doing a good job of that. Some comedy and stuff like that. Just fusing together my passions. I want to, just like in the restaurants, I still love creating restaurants. I'm working on concepts. Um, but I want to be able to wake up and just do what I love. Does anything yeah. inspire, you know, you've done a lot of different Concepts here mm-hmm. in Washington, and have all have they all been in Washington? Your restaurants, one in Arlington, uh, one okay, in Virginia, Arlington. nearby. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But how something inspire you? How do you move from one concept to the next? Oh wow, I'm always inspired by what my peers are doing. Um, the new generation eating too. out, eating out, checking out of the restaurants. Yeah, reading. I read a lot. I read a bunch all day online and and books, and I just yeah the culture and and the movements as far as what's going on. I try to keep a pulse on just what people are doing and, and um, you know, just seeing what the trends are doing, but just seeing what, like, what the pulse of the city is. So that really, really inspires me. I mean, there's a bunch of restaurants, a bunch of chefs all over the country, the world, obviously. But I see something, I'm like, man, I could do that. Or that's just, you know, really inspired. And then, I you know, I call up the my broker and they, they're like, oh, they want $100 a square foot. And, and then I, get, I go back to the podcast, right, you know. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Micheline, uh the CHIP program, the Children's Health Insurance Program, is on the chopping block right now. What? T- tell us, if you can, what you think the impact of that is going to be if it is not fully funded. Oh, my word. Um, so two things. One, um, right, really scary that we're in this particular situation right now. New Jersey in particular um, was a Medicaid expansion state. So we're, we're delighted about that. But I will tell you that if, in fact, we do not see um, CHIP funding continue um in our system, we have a hospital called Children's Specialized. It's actually uh, a rehab facility for the sickest children. So many of those families, right? Because you don't expect your child to go off on a field trip and wind up, um, as one particular case we had, um, uh, they went on an archery field trip and, and their child was struck in the head by an arrow. Right. You don't expect going through right brain surgeries with your 10 year old. And you also do not anticipate the 13 months of rehab in house stay. Right. So if, in fact, we do not see this um, uh, chip uh, funding continued, we're going to just see families that are devastated. Right. We're talking about individuals who have already had to do second mortgage on, on the home in order to to contemplate uh, long term uh, care of their child who. Uh, one day was up and bubbly and running around, and the next day um, they are truly trying to figure out how we are going to afford to live as well as afford to pay for all of uh, their health care. That's what uh, CHIP funding would look like. And, you know, the only, I don't even call it a silver lining because there is none, but the, the, the one thing I've noticed, Micheline, you probably have too, is that the current discussion around CHIP has at least shined a light on it. You know, I've heard uh, on the morning shows and on the evening shows, and I'm reading about it in papers, people are seeing really CHIP for the first time and, and the impact it has 
on our kids and our society. So I'm, I'm happy to see it in the news. It's we're all hoping that it's you know going to be fully funded so that we don't see the suffering that you just uh, you just described. Here, here. You know, you're a deeply religious person, a, a woman of deep faith, and I, when I heard you talk about it. It made me ask the question, did something, were you raised that, well, your father, right? I guess there, it comes from your father, but did something else triggered for you or was this part, was, this was, you felt this strongly about it most of your life? Um, so Debbie, wow, awesome question, right? I don't think I've ever formally been asked that before. Um, what I will tell you is um, two things, right? So yes, this was ingrained um, in our family, but not in a way that did not permit us an opportunity to either right, express or explore other religions. Listen, I, I my family was very, um, when I turned 16, I, I received um, a copy of the Quran, a copy of the Torah and, and the family Bible, right? Because literally what they kept saying was, you know, religion is just man's search for God, but God is always waiting for you, right? There, right? So, so feed your spirit was really what was said to us. Um, for me, Coming from um, Camden City um, and having families, I realized when I went off to college, that's when I really realized that my background, my experience at where I hailed from was somewhat different, right? So I went off to college. Uh, I went to Seton Hall University. I was one of maybe two other uh, persons of color in the university honors program. Um, and what I will tell you is that I would go home for funerals for my classmates and nobody else did. Right. So remember, right, we were the most dangerous city in America. So I had both um, boys and girls that I grew up with who were literally being murdered. Um, at some point, it forces you to have the, the dialogue, the internal dialogue um, with your spiritual self about the fact that, my God, like that could have been me. Right. There go I before grace. Right. So so why am I here? What am I here to do? What is the purpose, the plan and the promise for my presence on the planet? And that is what has driven me further and further into um, what I like to say is you're, you're absolutely right, right? Less religious, more more relationship. Um, but I'm very clear about what that means. And so even the work that I do now, I've said to my board chair and to my CEO, listen, uh, this is God's work. I've said that. I've, I say that publicly, right? I'm not doing this work because you've, you've assigned this to me. I'm called to this. So wherever I was going to wind up in life, I was going to wind up doing work which helped to ensure that vulnerable populations in communities across this globe were, were benefited, right? No matter what. And I feel that strongly was in kind of the very essence of my of my being since I was six years old. I, I you know, I, I was my mother tells me that I was always the one speaking out saying, Mom, that's not fair. Like the fact that they're picking on this person isn't fair. The fact that right we have this access and somebody else doesn't isn't fair. My parents um completely lived what what it was that they taught us though. They were also foster parents. So I grew up with lots of foster brothers and sisters, although I was a biological kid. And so I would hear from kids were, that were either badly abused and or neglected and or deserted. And, and you know, I just felt like that wasn't fair. And so fairness, equity is something that I've just always really um, looked to achieve, right, to try to bring about uh, an element of balance. And I will tell you right now that when you get news that the girl who sat next to you in um, algebra was gunned down because she was mistaken for her brother, like what happened with me, with, with my childhood friend Shaniqua, or you get news that your best friend that you, um, when you were a public defender um, and she was your chief investigator, has taken her life. When you get that news, the only thing that keeps you going is, is faith and hope 
in the fact that, right, there's got to be, right, there's got to be some positive outcome that happens at the end of this, right, that there's that this has got to get better. But more importantly, that my presence on this planet right now means that I have to have a hand in bringing about that change. So for me, that's all been connected, Debbie. And that that's that's just my my gospel truth. That's all been connected. Right. As Chef Rock talks about um, DC Kitchen and his book. Right. I hear and feed the least of these. Right. I, I feel like that's a Sermon on the Mount by itself. Right. That to me is being the hands and feet of a spirit um, that that says run to those who are in need and and deliver that need to them. Each one of us is only blessed so that we can bless somebody else. Can I, can I say, can I say amen? <laughs> amen. Is that Both of us. Yeah, all right. Uh, Rock, uh, before we start to wrap up, I have got to hear what your experience was like on Hell's Kitchen. Because I, I hear terrible things. Yeah. <laughs> I hear scary things. And you're a winner. Yeah, it turned out pretty good for me. But maybe <laughs> scary things on the show. I mean, you know, it's, it's TV, right? But it is Gordon Ramsay. I mean, Americans, we don't really know his culinary prowess because we don't really travel to his restaurants. As a, like he's we king. Know, he's king in the UK. He's king. Yeah. He's a he's king here. He's king everywhere now. And he's a great chef. He, he's one of the best on the planet. Now, we get a rap for being like the last, you know, idiot standing. That's what sort of is the narrative, underlying narrative. But people, I hope people understand that. This is Gordon Ramsay. You know, he plays, he is one of the big boys, right? So we're trying to put out his food. I know he yells at us and throws quail eggs and stuff like that, which he did. Uh, but but, but even, though yeah. it's t- even though it's TV and you know it's what it is, mm-hmm. is it, does it, still, it still feels incre- like incredible pressure. Oh, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my career. Ever to date, my still. My um, it, it was the hard. It's the, one of the best chefs in the world, and you're trying to impress him, and it, it was it was tough. So that part's real, right? The rest of oh, it sort of show, cut, but that part's this. real. They cut out the bad stuff. Everything everybody says that's bad, they cut out the bad stuff. He says, and I love him. Just just hit him up the other day. Wonderful guy. They he has curse words that aren't even invented. <laughs> So the bleeps people. Let's hear one. I can't, right. <laughs> if Michelin weren't on here, I, you know, I, you're used Aww. to chefs, but yeah. Um, uh, it's true. They it's, say it all. He's creative, man. Those 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 UKers, they're pretty creative with the comebacks and the snaps and the curse words. It's great. Uh, so it's it was great. wonderful. It was really hard, stressful thing, but it changed my life. And he, he changes people's lives. Um, and I, I think that's really important. That show has really put people. He says, use me. Use this platform. This is not everything. But use it. Here's what I'm giving you something. Now go use it. And I think that's wonderful. It's great. Yeah. Uh, Micheline, as we start to wrap up, can you what is next for you in, in your in your work and in your career? Oh, wow. Fantastic. Um, I think really helping to to um, uh, expand and grow so much of the work that we've been prototyping right here uh, in the city of Newark across the bandwidth of RWJ Barnabas. Right. So we're doing uh, greenhouse expansions and policy reform, you know, in Jersey City and Brunswick. And 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 also I oversee global health and so have been traveling back and forth with my clinical teams to Puerto Rico in order to render aid. But how do we right? What have we learned from these communities and how do we help to create some sustainable community resiliency. Um, and then what does that modeling look like um, across 
across the globe. So so that's where my, my focus is now, as well as uh, making certain that we're raising up the next generation, right, of, um, I want to call them food justice advocates, um, so that folks understand that, right, um, that they have the opportunity to create a tomorrow um, that yesterday couldn't even dream about. Rock, what about you? I know Rock Solid is your focus. When we see you in a restaurant cooking, or what are we going to see from you in D.C.? Well, always. There's always a restaurant possibility. The biggest thing is uh, the Chef Rock Experiment podcast, available everywhere. Um, uh, and that's my. I want to bring a, a new face to uh, to media, to food-based, chef-based media, if, if such a thing exists. Um, definitely, uh, is, is, I want to give more opportunities to people like me, um, especially African-Americans in in this, in our space, there's a, I think there's a void, huge void that needs to be filled. Uh, and a, a show, I have a show called Shift Drink. It's a television show, if you will, a visual show, where a bunch of food people sit around, have a beverage, like we do all the time, and talk about <laughs> things. So, uh, and that we sounds like it. fun. It is a bunch of fun. Love I got that. a new episode coming out soon. Um, so we talked about politics and, um, and health awesome. and things of that nature. So. It's just a what we do is what chefs do after work. It's what food people do. Go grab a shift drink. That's my last question to you is yeah. where do you go in D.C. that <laughs> like what's your favorite place? And maybe it's a place that nobody, you know, the average person doesn't know about. But where, where do you like to hang out in D.C.? Oh, my goodness. You must tell us. Um, that is a tough question. So we're going to edit all of that out of that this dead space. Um. Uh, that's really hard. Or do, do you look more for drinks or you look more for the food? Always the both. Here's here's one place Cocktails. I love. Uh, here's one place I love. We had uh, Mike Isabel on the show, and and I've asked. I, we asked him this question, and I think the only answers he gave were the the, the bars, not the restaurants. Right. So I know right. there's a lot of great little hidden spots. Whatever Mike is drinking, that's what I'm drinking. Yeah, there you drinks, go. <laughs> Mike drinks eighty dollar glass bourbon, so I like that. As long as he's paying, I like to hang with Mike. Um, Service bar on U Street. I think that's like not between 9th and 10th on U. Great wow. little spot. They have a nice little private room. The funky things those guys are doing with cocktails. And then they have fried. I'm, I'm eating Writing that one down. Yeah, you got to go. I'm eating plant-based right now, so not a lot of meat. But they got this fried chicken awesome. and greens and french fries. Ridiculously good. You have to go there. Micheline, you have a favorite place in West Orange? Um, well, I have to tell you, my, my favorite place actually is in D.C., right, guys? I'm sorry. I, I oversee our state and federal lobbying, so I'm in D.C. a lot. Um, and so, um, right, I am a Rasika fan. I'm sorry. Um, but but I am definitely going to try um, wherever Chef Rock uh, sends me. I got to tell you, that sounds awesome. We have to connect when you're in D.C., okay? Love and, it. And we're going to go it. to Rasika. My man, uh, I love it. Vicar. That's what we're doing. Yeah. We can all three go. I, I would love it. I would love it. Don't and, forget the to reach out to me. Next time you're there, uh, to, if you speak with, if you have the opportunity to, to speak with the chef, he's a friend, Vikram Sunderman. Sunderman. What are you talking about? You're coming with us and you're going to make certain that Vikram is there. You got it. Yep. Right. All right. I know we got to go, but I, quick question for you, Micheline. Oh, yeah. is there, if there's a, um, a book you could recommend for, you know, I'm studying a lot of uh, high performance individuals right now. You seem to be a uh, high performer, not seem to be, but you are. But uh, any books you're reading right now or a book that you would recommend to, to people? Oh, my gosh. Um, so a f- I'm sorry, a few. Right. So I have a tendency to read uh, too many at one time. Um, and mine is coming out. So so just right. Hold hold a uh, a bookmark for, for that one um, when it gets out here. But um, I will say um, there is a book by a professor of mine, uh, Rosebeth Cantor. Um, she's up at, at HBS, up at Harvard Business School. But she wrote a book on Vanguard uh, corporations and it's called Supercorp. And it really is. So how are traditional 
corporations really becoming or taking uh, on an approach to become much more of a social enterprise? How are they literally changing, right, the way in which they've operated for so long in order to do social good while also achieving, right, profitable margins? So really interesting read. Um, And then um, there's another uh, leadership pipeline is always really good. Oh, wait, and How Great Women Lead by Bonnie St. John. I love recommending that to to, um, my male colleagues as well. It really um, is something I think is is worth reading for for everybody, no matter the gender. Thank you. That sounds great. Well, thank you both. This has been a terrific show. Chef Rock Harper from D.C., thanks for being here. And Micheline Davis, great to have you. Thanks so much. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.